You know, illustrations are important. Uh, pictures help us to see things more clearly. It's kind of like the little boy who was drawing a picture. He was only four years old, but he was sitting at the table and very intently focused and drawing a picture. And his dad came up and asked him, you know, son, what are you drawing? And he said, uh, without looking up even, he just said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the dad said, well, son, uh, you know, well, nobody's uh, ever seen God. I mean, nobody in the whole world knows what God looks like. And the boy, without looking up, said, well, they will in just about one minute. So for the last few weeks, we've been doing a series uh, here at Whitefields called Plot Lines, which we call Plot Lines, the stories which tell the stories. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've been very much enjoying uh, teaching this, studying for it. It's been one of my favorites, personally. Um, in this series, each week, what we're doing is taking a journey through the Bible. We're going each week from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And what we're looking at is these recurring themes that pop up again and again throughout the Bible. These subplots, you could call them. You could call them metaphors or stories that run like threads through all the many books that make up the Bible. And the, like the picture that the little boy drew of God, each of these plot lines is a story which paints for us a picture of the gospel, each one giving us unique insight into who God is and how he loves us and what he has done to redeem us in Jesus Christ. And as we look at these different plot lines, again, each one painting a little bit different picture of the gospel, it's like turning a diamond under the light, right? We get to see each and every glimmer, each and every aspect of its brilliance and its beauty. So, so far in this series, we've done three weeks. This will be number four. Uh, the three weeks so far have been the story of the lamb. We looked at the story of the rock. And last week, we looked at the story of the river. And, uh, you know, if you have missed any of the last few weeks, I would encourage you to go online and get caught up because these have been, uh, at least for me, been very rich. And I, I've loved doing this. So this week, we'll be looking at another one. This week, we're looking at the story of the wedding, the story of the wedding. You could say that the Bible, at its heart, is the story of a wedding. So please open with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. The book of Genesis, there at the beginning of the Bible. And I'm actually going to start in chapter 1, but we're going to read in chapter 2. We begin with the story of the wedding. Now, uh, as we begin, I mean, I was reflecting on my own wedding. Uh, I'm sure each of us has a story that we could tell about your wedding, a, a unique, interesting story. So I got married a little over nine years ago. We're, we're coming up on the Big Ten next year. And Rosemary and I got married in a church near the beach in Carlsbad, California. Now, we both lived in Hungary at the time, and we had both flown back to the U.S. Uh, to get married. Rosemary had come out a couple weeks before me and made a lot of preparations, and then I flew out pretty much just for the wedding. So it was really, I don't know, this is just kind of how a lot of things happened for me, but it was really only the night before the wedding when I, I really realized the gravity of what was happening. Like, wait a second. And uh, we were doing the dress rehearsal, or I guess not dress rehearsal, it's just a rehearsal, right? We are doing the rehearsal, and the reality of the situation just hit me like a ton of bricks. And last night I went through our wedding album and there are these two photos of me in which I, taken at the rehearsal, and I look like I've seen a ghost, right? I like, like, I look like a deer in the headlights. My eyes are all big and I'm about to have a heart attack. And, uh, and I'm standing there, you know, and it, like I said, just hit me like a ton of bricks, the, the weight and gravity of what was happening. So the next day we got to the church, right, and I'm all dressed up and 
everything's going and and the service started and I got to walk out there and there are only two things going through my head for like the first 20-25 minutes of the service like the first half the only two things in my head were don't throw up don't pass out don't throw up don't pass out don't throw up don't pass out I didn't even hear anything the pastor said for like the first 20 minutes the only thing I could hear was don't throw up, don't pass out, you know? And, uh, and then about halfway through the service, I realized, all right, well, I haven't thrown up and I haven't passed out yet, and, and I'm only gonna do this once, you know? So I might as well enjoy it. So I stopped talking to myself, and I actually started enjoying the rest of the ceremony. And uh, we said our vows, we got married, everything was a success. I didn't throw up, I didn't pass out, so everything was great. That was my wedding day. I'm sure each of you who, got, who has been married, you, you have a, your own story to tell about your wedding day. But the first wedding ceremony that ever took place happened a long time ago, a really long time ago, and it was officiated by God himself. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about how God created the sun and the moon, the earth and the stars, the plants and the animals, and after each of the things that he created, God looked at it and said, it is good. But on the sixth day, God created man. And when God created man, he did not say, it is good. You know what he said? He said, it is very good. Right? For the first time, God says, it is very good. And that tells us a little something about uh, our place in the order of God's creation as human beings. It means this, that God likes nature. God likes trees. He likes animals. But he loves people. Okay, so then next we get into chapter 2, and, and it kind of zooms in on the creation of man, right? And we see something interesting. Whereas God has said up until this point that everything he created was good, and some things he created were exceedingly good, he looks at something and says, it is not good. That's interesting, right? What is that thing that God made that is not good in his estimation? Is something that God made not good? What is this? Well, it wasn't a thing that God created. It was a condition that man was in. And God looked on it and said, it is not good. In Genesis chapter 2 from verse 18, we'll read. It says, the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him or a helper fit for him. So God looks at Adam whom he made and he said, it is not good. It's not good that he should be alone. God noticed, and here's an important point. God noticed that Adam had a need for companionship even beyond his relationship with God. Now you might say, well, why does he need a companion, right? Doesn't he have God? Isn't that enough? Well, according to God, we as people have been created in such a way that we do need companionship from other people. It's fundamental to who we are and how we've been created by God. So they're just in the first two chapters of Genesis. Now we have confronted two of the very important cultural issues here in Boulder County. And these are the, those are these. God does care more about people than he does about trees and elk. Okay, there's number one. And number two, it's not just enough to have a dog in the back of your Subaru, you also need to have relationships with people, right? Okay, so two cultural issues that the Word of God speaks to. That's why we put such a big emphasis here at Whitefields on community, because it's not good for man to be alone. We need companionship, and that's not just true of life in general, but it's true of life in the spiritual way as well. Spiritual life, our walk with God, it's not good for man to be alone. You could put it this way, it's not good for man to be a lone ranger, okay? 
God says, I will create a helper fit for him. And here's what happens next from verse 19 of chapter 2. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable for him. Before God gives Adam a helper, he gives Adam a job. That's an important uh, order there if there's any single guys in here. Get a job first, okay? Uh, but here's another one. Uh, he gives jobs to, or his job is to name all the animals. So God brings all the animals and they, you know, parade there before Adam. And he has to give them all a name. And you know, I think that that would be a pretty fun job. I mean, he could name them anything he wanted. We don't even know what he named them because since then we've given them our own names and in our own languages. But you know, I'm just thinking, what would I do? I'd be like, I'm gonna call that one Bart Simpson, I'm gonna call that one a Dinglehopper, and that one I'm gonna call him Curtis, right? And uh, I'm sure he had fun with it, but this job, right, it, what did it do? It brought to his attention the reality of his condition. It brought to his attention this need that he had that he hadn't realized yet until that point. Because there go in front of him, he says, all right, Mr. and Mrs. Orangutan, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus. And then he's like, hey, wait a second. Something's missing, right? Where is Mrs. Adam? So I'm convinced that the reason why God gave Adam this job at this time was so that he would realize this need that he had, this lack in his life. And that brings us to another important point. God knew Adam's need before Adam even realized he had a need. And not only did God realize that he had that need, but God already had a plan for how to provide for him. And the same is true of you. Whatever that need is in your life that you have, you need to know that God sees it, that he knows it, that he's known about it before you even became aware that you would have that need. And not only that, he has a plan for how he's going to meet that need. But here's Adam. He's feeling bad. He's feeling like everybody else has something that he doesn't. And look what happens next in Genesis uh, 2 verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So God brings him a companion, custom made just for him. And check out Adam's reaction. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, right? He's excited to say the least. And, uh, and, then we read these final statements here in Genesis from verse 24 and 25. We read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why am I reading this to you? What does this have to do with anything? Here's what. This is the story of the first wedding in history. And here's what I want you to see. All of human history begins with a wedding. All of human history, it began with a wedding which was orchestrated, which was officiated by God. And all of human history, it begins with this wedding in which people stand before God unashamed. Unashamed. That's important. And we're going to keep that in mind as we continue on. Now fast forward with me, if you would, to the Old Testament, to the prophets. One of the things that I love... Uh, you know, teaching on is kind of these obscure texts. So that's one of the reasons I love teaching through this series because like last week, you know, we were studying Ezekiel. This week, we're gonna go back to the prophets again. 
Now the reason the prophets are interesting is because their job was to communicate to the people the heart of God. That was their job. God would give the prophet a message and many times in those messages what he wanted to communicate to the people was how he felt towards them, how he felt about them or about what it was that they were doing. And during times of rebellion God would speak to the people through the prophet and he would warn them of the consequences of their actions. He would call them to repentance. Other times, the, the prophet would have a message of comfort or encouragement during a time of affliction. But oftentimes, it wasn't just words that God would give to the prophet. They would, he would also give them actions. He would give them tasks to act out, to do, to be vivid illustrations for people, powerful visuals, right? Practical examples that people could look at and see so they could really understand, so they could fully grasp what God was trying to tell them. And one of the first prophets to come on the scene was a man named Hosea. So if you got your Bible, you can turn with me to Hosea. You know, the first, uh, first wedding I attended when I moved to Hungary, it was for a couple uh, in the church where I first, first served there in Hungary. And the pastor who was officiating the wedding, he was a good friend of mine. He was the pastor I was serving under. And he preached at that wedding for an hour from Hosea. Now, uh, afterwards, I asked him, you know, like, what were you thinking? Like, what in the world? And let's just say the parents of the bride and groom were not very happy about this. Um, I, I'm not sure which part they were upset about more, that, uh, you know, the pastor preached out of the book of Hosea or that he preached for an hour. But those of you who know what the book of Hosea is about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know why these parents were upset, well, you're about to find out. God gave Hosea a very interesting, in fact, a shocking task, which was to serve as a powerful illustration to the people of Israel of their spiritual situation. Here's what God asked Hosea to do. You know what it was? It will, I'll read it to you. Hosea chapter 1 from verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, take, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. God told Hosea to do something incredible. He told him to go out and find a prostitute and marry her. And he was to love her and be faithful to her, even though she would be unfaithful to him. Even though she would constantly be running off on him all the time, she would even be having children by other men. Hosea was called to continually love her, to continue to pursue her and go out after her, to go and find her and bring her home. And even though she would run off all the time, Hosea was called to be faithful to her. And he was called to raise those children that she even had by other men. Those are the children of harlotry that are referred to. He would be called to raise those children in his home as his own. Can you even imagine that? Can you, can you try and grasp that? Just really think about this because this is something this guy did. Just think about this. This is pretty extreme really. But before any of this happened, before Gomer ran off with other men and, and continued in this life of harlotry, there was a wedding. Before any of that happened, here's the first thing that happens here in the first part. He goes out and he finds this woman and he marries her. And there's a wedding. Hosea goes out as God instructed him. He finds this prostitute named Gomer. He marries her. And 
Maybe you're starting to understand why the parents of the bride weren't exactly happy that the pastor decided to preach on this text at their daughter's wedding for an hour, right? Now the question is, why would God ask Hosea to do such a thing? Why would God ask Hosea to do something that would cause him so much pain personally, so much heartache, so much grief? Here's why. Because this was an illustration, a visual, a practical example for the people of Israel concerning their relationship with God. Because throughout the Old Testament, there's a very important concept, and that is this, that God's relationship with his people is like the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's meant to be that intimate. It's meant to have that level of intimacy and knowledge of love and faithfulness, of loyalty and companionship. In the Old Testament, God is called the husband of Israel, and Israel is called the wife of of Jehovah. In Isaiah chapter 54, just a few examples for you here. It says this, fear not for you will not be ashamed for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Jeremiah says this in chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband. So there's this picture throughout the Old Testament that God is the husband of his people Israel and the people Israel are the wife of Jehovah. So God's love and actions towards Israel, they were the actions of a true husband. He was faithful, he was loving, he cared for them, he provided for them, he was self-sacrificing, and he led them. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle refers to this, and he tells husbands that the way that God has loved us is the way that we are to love our wives. But even though God was a true husband to Israel, Israel many times like we do, they had a tendency, a tragic tendency, to turn away from God and run after other things, to pursue other loves, to be unfaithful to her husband. And so in order to help Israel see and understand what exactly they were doing, how, uh, the, how grievous and how much anguish it caused God over this, God calls Hosea to become a living example of it. So Hosea goes down and he finds this woman, go. Oh, excuse me, Gomer, she's a prostitute. And he marries her. He makes her his wife. Now think about this. By doing this action, Hosea is saving this woman. He's saving this woman who is condemned to this fate because in that day, no one would ever consider marrying a prostitute. Once you became a prostitute, game over. You're locked in. That's it, right? You're relegated. No one wants you at that point. And notice again what God is saying to a person in this condition, the person that nobody wants. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you. That's so important. That's the gospel. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're somebody who feels like nobody wants you. Maybe it's because of things that you've done. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe you've legitimately blown it. Maybe you've done terrible things. But for whatever reason, you are convinced that nobody wants you. Here's the message of the gospel for you. God wants you. 
That's it. And check out this picture. Not only does he go down to the gutter and find this woman who's a prostitute, but he marries her. And that means this. That means that he takes her into his home. He makes her his wife. It means that he is going to love her. He's going to cherish her. He is going to pamper her. He's going to clothe her. He's going to meet all of her needs. He's going to give her security and safety and always be there for her. What a huge change for a woman in her condition, right? Until now, she has been being used and abused by men, treated like rubbish, but now she is saved from that terrible fate that she was locked into. She's brought into a whole new way of living where she's loved and cherished rather than used and abused. So Hosea, he pursues Gomer. He redeems her from this fate to which she's condemned. She could never have saved herself, right? She was locked in. She could never have saved herself, not in that culture, not in that day. The only way to escape the fate that she was locked into was for someone, an outsider, to come in and rescue her from it by marrying her. But who would do such a thing? Who would want to marry a woman in her condition? Surely no one in their right mind would ever want that or choose that, right? She's tarnished, she's broken, but Hosea does. Hosea does because God is saying, this is how I feel towards people. This is how I feel towards people. He wants to show his heart to us through this act. All of us, you know that, we were all like Gomer, right? We were all broken, condemned to a terrible fate, not able to save ourselves from it. But the good news of the gospel is that God, because of his great love for you, not because you deserved it, simply because he loved you, he came and found you and rescued you from the terrible fate that you were condemned to. He brought you in, he placed his love upon you and made you his own. That's good news, amen? Hosea goes and finds this woman and he brings her into his home and he marries her. Now I want you to think about what a woman, a prostitute in that day, would have looked like when he found her. Again, she's probably wearing filthy clothes. She's probably got greasy, unwashed hair. She, she's probably got dirt on her face. But Hosea marries her. And in order to get her ready for this great wedding, that he's, he's going to have a wedding, right? In order to get her ready for the wedding, what does he do? Well, he's got to give her new clothes to wear. He's got to get rid of the filthy rags and the, the garments she's been found in. And he provides her with wedding garments. And he washes her and cleans her up, wipes the dirt off her face, washes her hair, get, lets her take a bath so that she will be beautiful and brilliant and radiant on her wedding day. I don't know if any of you saw that video this week. This video went viral. Uh, it was made by a church. They, they brought in this homeless man. Do you guys see this one? They brought in this homeless guy who had been living on the streets for years. And they did this time-lapse video where they, they brought him in and they cleaned him up. And they, they washed him off. And they gave him a haircut. They trimmed his beard. And they took off his tattered street clothes. And they put him in a, you know, in a full suit. It was an amazing transformation. I think I have a picture of it up there for you, hopefully. Yeah, so it was, it was a cool video. You should check it out. But, and, and of course, the great thing is that they didn't just stop there, but they actually helped this man get into rehab and get off the streets. It was a great story. But this is the kind of thing we're talking about that Hosea did for Gomer. It was an illustration of how God loves us and brings us in and transforms us and makes us into new people. So Hosea goes out, he finds Gomer, he brings her in, he, he washes her up, he clothes her in beautiful wedding garments, washes off the dirt to reveal her beauty, to make her shine. And then 
there was a wedding to seal the deal. Now fast forward with me to Jesus. Jesus once told a parable about a wedding feast. Actually, he told two parables about wedding feasts in Matthew chapter 22 and chapter 25. So if you got your Bible, open with me to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 22 first. Both of these parables are about wedding feasts, but from a little bit different perspective. Let's read the one in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants and to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their own ways, one to his farm, another to his business. Then verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways. As many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him out into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, when you read this parable, you kind of can't help but think, isn't that a little harsh, right? <laughs> he guy's a little underdressed for the party, so you tie him up and throw him out into, the, into hell, actually, right? So, uh, yeah, that's pretty uh, harsh, right? Well, let me explain to you a little bit about why this king was so upset. In this parable, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a wedding feast that's thrown by a king. Now, I personally love weddings. I think they're uh, kind of my favorite parties to go to. So if any of you know of any good weddings happening in the near future, you know, do what you can to get me invited because I'd like to be there. The king invites all these people to this great wedding feast, but the people he invited don't care. They don't care. In the same way, there are people who hear the good news of salvation and new life in Jesus Christ, and guess what? They just don't care. You know, they're too busy like these guys. They're too busy with their farm, their job. They're too busy fixing up their house. They don't have time for a wedding feast. They've got other priorities. So the king says to his servant, look, if the people I invited don't care, then go out and invite anybody, anybody you find. Everybody who wants to come is welcome to come. I'm just throwing the doors open, right? Now the custom in that day was this. If you would go to a fancy party, the host would provide the clothes. So you, you would just go to your party and whatever, you know, you're wearing in your sweats, in your, you know, your overalls or whatever it is that you wear. And, and no matter what you come in, uh, when you arrive, you're handed a set of clothes and you go and you change into the party clothes which the host would provide for you. And that's an interesting thing because then everybody's wearing the same thing. Nobody's overdressed or underdressed you, you can't see how wealthy or poor somebody is because everybody is wearing the same clothes and the clothes are provided by the host now here's the problem in the parable this is why the king gets upset there's this one guy and he's standing there and he's not wearing the wedding clothes which he provided for the guests so he goes over to him why aren't you wearing the wedding clothes the guy has nothing to say and the king gets angry why 
Why is the king so angry? Here's why. Because this guy rejected the wedding clothes that the king provided for him. This guy ultimately said, I don't need your wedding clothes because my clothes are good enough. And the king says, how dare you reject my gift? How dare you come into my house in your clothes and think that my clothes, you don't need them, that your clothes are better than my clothes, that you don't need to wear my party clothes. Everybody else needs it. You think that you somehow don't? This would have been a huge disrespect to the king. And that's why the king kicks him out of the house. What's the point of the story? Here's what it is. You and I have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, into this grand party, which is called the kingdom of God. We are guests of the king. We're invited to his house for the greatest party ever. But look at how we're dressed, right? We're wearing sweats. We're wearing overalls. We're muddy and dirty. We can't go to a royal party dressed like this. We can only go if we have the right clothes. But the good news is that the king has provided the clothes that we need to get into the party, right? He's provided them. It's a gift. You just go there and you take it and you put them on. That's it. And then you can go into the party. That's great, right? The party clothes in this parable, they represent righteousness. They represent righteousness, which God offers us freely as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The person in the story who refuses to accept the gift of the party clothes, who rudely insists that their clothes are good enough for them, this is the person who believes that they are good enough in their own goodness to get into heaven, right? And notice this. This is the person that the king is most offended by, right? It says that in, the, in this uh, parable, it says there were both good people and bad people. They were both welcomed in. The good and the bad, the moral and the immoral, they're all welcome. The only person who is sent away, the only person who's kicked out of the party is not the immoral person, it is the self-righteous person. Do you get that? Do you get that? The self-righteous person. It's this person who makes the king angry, who on the day of judgment will be dressed only in the rags of their own righteousness. The Bible says in Isaiah that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Not our bad deeds are like filthy rags. Our best deeds are only as good as filthy rags. And we will all stand before God one day. And the question is not, will I stand before God one day? The question that is most pertinent for all of us is, what will I be wearing when I stand before God on that day? There are really three ways that people will be dressed. There will be those who are found naked before him on that day. These are the people at the beginning of the story, the people who were just never concerned. They never cared. They never took the time to prepare themselves for the wedding feast. Others on that day will be clothed in the rags of their own righteousness. They will be clothed in their own goodness. But then there will be those who are clothed in the white robes of righteousness that God freely gives through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are those of us who have said, my clothes are not good enough for the presence of the king. 
But thank you, great king, that you have come and found me. You've invited me in. You've provided me with robes of righteousness that I need in order to enter the wedding feast. So let me ask you this. What will you be wearing when you stand before God? In Revelation 19, at the end of the last book of the Bible, speaking about what will happen at the end of all things, we read this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult in him and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and there's two important things here first is this you are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb just like in that parable but there's one more thing not only are you invited to be a guest but you are invited to be the bride and like gomer your bridegroom has sought you out he has come to where you are he has called you to be his own he has welcomed you into his home he has betrothed you as his bride and right now he is preparing you for that wedding He's preparing you. He's washing you, fixing you up, giving you fine linen, bright and pure, so that on that day, you will be radiant. He didn't choose you because of how good you looked, but when you answered his call of salvation to to come to him, to have a completely new life, a new name, a new future, now he's making you beautiful in preparation for the wedding day. You know, the way that a Jewish wedding worked is that the bridegroom would betroth his beloved and, and then he would pay what is called a bride price, okay? So he would pay the father of the bride a bride price, which was a, a chunk of money. Sometimes this was a, a year's wages. And he would do that to reserve her in a sense, to say, she is mine and you may not give her to any other. And then the bridegroom would leave. He would leave and he would go away for an undetermined amount of time to prepare a home for him and his bride and their new family. And at some point when all the preparations were made, the husband would return for his bride. And and the bride never knew exactly when the bridegroom would arrive. She knew maybe generally he might arrive, but she had to be ready because he could arrive at any time. And when he did arrive, that's when the wedding feast would begin, even if it was in the middle of the night. And in Matthew chapter 25, you can turn there if you want. We're not going to read it, but definitely mark it down. Jesus uses this exact example of the bridegroom to describe who he is and what he has come to do. And in his first coming, essentially, he's saying this, I came to you and betrothed you. And he paid the price, the bride price for us. Jesus purchased us like Hosea purchased Gomer in order to save her from a a life of harlotry. He purchased us like a bridegroom pays the bride price to secure that the one he loves will be his and not any others. And then he left, right? He left. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you so that where I am there, you can be also. I will come for you. One day the bridegroom will return. No one knows exactly when it will be, but when he returns, the wedding will begin and it will never end. The Bible at its essence is the story. It's the story of a wedding. 
It starts with a wedding arranged and officiated by God and it ends with a wedding arranged and officiated by God. It starts with a wedding in which people stand before God unashamed and it ends with a wedding in which people stand before God unashamed. And the good news of the gospel is this, that you are invited to that wedding feast of the Lamb. The question for you, the question that all of us need to consider and answer ourselves is this. Will you respond to that invitation? Will you respond? You're invited. Will you respond? Will you say yes to that invitation to take part in the wedding feast, which all of history has been building up to? And if so, what will you be wearing when you show up? Will you accept the wedding clothes that God is offering you through Jesus Christ? Will you accept the robes of his righteousness rather than trying to show up in the robes of your goodness, in your righteousness? Will you admit that the clothes that you're clothed in are insufficient? They're like Gomer's filthy rags that she needs to be changed out of for her wedding day. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the hope of Jesus Christ, that he can make you stand before God unashamed, covered in righteousness because you're in Jesus Christ. The story of the world is the story of a wedding. Everything is building up to this climax and the question is, are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Are you wearing the right clothes? Because someday soon, when none of us is expecting it, each of us will stand before God. And I pray that you'll be ready, amen? Let's stand and pray.